Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about Triangle of Sadness by Ruben Ostland. And there are so many valuable things that we can talk about. Um, you know, there's a way to think of Triangle of Sadness as basically it's white lotus on a boat. Um, but there's also something very interesting happening. There's a dialectical structure about the battle between capitalism and socialism that looks at it as in a really complicated way and the, the challenges of making any kind of sense out of uh, a philosophy in a world where everybody seems to be motivated so much by power. Um, so we're going to be talking about that, but we're going to be pressing all those complicated concepts through a very simple idea that I think is going to be hugely helpful for you as a screenwriter. So we are going to be talking about Triangle of Sadness in the context of how do you use location in your screenwriting. So I want to give you a stronger way of thinking about location and understanding the value of location. So it is true that every time you introduce a new location into your storytelling, you are asking for money. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it means that you want to get the most out of your locations. If we're gonna, every time we write a scene heading, cost our producers money, we want to make it worth their while. And we want to be building structure and character and fun out of our locations. This happens from the very beginning of Triangle of Sadness, right? Opening scene, we are in the location of a casting call for models. And you can see from the very beginning, this filmmaker is getting the very most out of this location. We're not just sitting around watching the models. We're watching... Uh, I don't know if he's a documentarian or like a, uh, you know, uh, uh, an Us Weekly person or like a Entertainment Tonight person, but he is interviewing these models, making some kind of documentary or reality show programming about them. Uh, and by the time it's done, he's gotten them all to play the game of the high brand versus the low brand, right? The smile versus the grumpy, right? We, we, we've gotten this wonderful game that just comes out of that location. As we move into the next scene, you could see the location being used again, right? Now our main character, Carl, is auditioning for this piece. And he's in this big empty room with a casting table. And you can see how they make him use the whole room by making him walk through the room, right? So a location doesn't have to be an ironic location. It can be a casting call happening at a casting place. It can be a fight happening at dinner, right? There's nothing wrong with that, but you constantly want to be asking yourself, how am I squeezing the most out of that location? And so much of that is about observation, really looking in your mind's eye at the location, asking yourself, what are the things about the location that haven't been shown in a movie before? What do I see that surprises me? If you just close your eyes and step into a location, you might notice that at first it feels a little vague, right? It's just a room, right? You might need to notice what color the carpet is. You might need to notice what, uh, what is written on the bathroom wall, right? You might need to kind of close your eyes and step into it with the full specificity as if the place were real. 
And then once you find that thing that surprises you, you want to activate it and get the most possible amount of fun out of it. So sometimes it's easiest to actually start before we start making up real locations to actually start with your real life location. In most people, the skill of looking is underdeveloped. We think that we are looking at things, um, but we're not really looking at what we see. What's actually happening neurologically is we are forming an impression and we're, we're labeling what we see. We're going bedroom, closet, office, cat, dog, secretary, right? We're labeling things instead of seeing them. So one of the ways to start building those visual skills for yourself is just to start looking in your current location, looking around as if this was a location that you were shooting until you see something that you didn't even notice in your own location. So if I was going to play with my location right now, I might say interior Airbnb dining room. There's no office in my little Airbnb uh, where I'm traveling right now. So I'm in my dining room and I might think I have a location, but I don't actually have a location yet. So I need to start looking around. Um, the first thing I notice is the vast number of wires piled up on the kitchen table as it's connected to my lights and my camera and my laptop and my microphone and my iPad and my keyboard and my mixing equipment, right? I got this vast amount of twisted up wires that on a daily basis, I, I, I barely notice. Um, if I keep looking around, I notice that I, I'm on a glass table um, and that that glass table has specks and dots and smudges on it from my fingers as I've been working from cups of coffee that have left rings, right? I realize, oh, it hasn't actually been cleaned. Even though I, I even though I've been working here every day for the last month, I, I didn't notice that until I actually forced myself to look. Um, I just noticed this, um, this has probably been sitting on my SE Electronics warranty registration. Um, yeah, this is for a microphone uh, that didn't work out that I returned, right? And until I actually looked around to do this exercise with you guys, I didn't even realize I'd accidentally kept the user manual, right? It was just sitting on my desk, invisible to me, or not even on my desk. It was just sitting on my kitchen table, where, which I'm using as my desk, invisible to me. And this is just the desk area. I can continue to spread out and look around the room. Um, I'm noticing that there is a doorway with crown molding on it, which is more than you kind of expect in an Airbnb, leading to a bedroom that is directly in front of me. And that there is a second rectangle of, uh, of uh, blinds framed by curtains. So there's like a rectangle inside that rectangle. I've been looking, that's straight in front of me. I've been looking at that every single day, but I haven't noticed it yet. Um, there are two really awful modern art paintings on the wall that are basically just slashes of black against a uh, off-white background. Um, and 
I don't think I've even realized until now that those were hanging. They didn't exist for me, but they frame that, that little doorway. Um, and they're, they're not straight as I really look at them closely. Um, this is what I'm talking about, right? As we start to recognize the fun things in the room, we can start to activate them. We could start to activate them by giving the character actions in relation to them. Um, so I have this little catalog. Jake can read the catalog. Jake can make a paper airplane out of the catalog. Jake can flip through the catalog to make a, a sound. Jake can throw the catalog. Um, Jake can stick the catalog in an envelope to mail back to the company that he accidentally kept it from because he feels so guilty. Um, and you can see that each of those little actions just in relation to this little catalog, right, root us in the scene, create some fun and reveal some really cool things about the character. Jake can clean the smudges on his desk or Jake can make more smudges on his desk. I can watch his hand scrape along the desk, leaving smudges. I can watch the palm print spread along the glass, right? We can have an action scene that takes place as Jake dashes through that, that uh, rectangle and throws himself through the other rectangle, right? Um, or we can play with who appears at the other side of that rectangle and how do we start to break those rectangles. So the concept is, before I really looked, we can play with the wires. We can, Jake can organize the wires. Jake can get tangled up in the wires and pull everything down. And you can notice that with each of these actions, we start to get a genre, right? We start to get a feeling of the piece. So what we had before was something totally boring, right? We, we had interior dining room day. Now we have something exciting, right? We have something that reveals character. We have something that reveals tone, that reveals genre, that reveals fun. We potentially have a set piece, right? We have stuff that we can use. Jake can organize the artwork. Jake can straighten it. Jake can stab a hole in it. Jake can replace it with his own artwork, right? There are a million things that can happen that activate the scene and that make us feel real. And when we do this, what happens is we get grounded in the scene. See, as screenwriters, we're taught structure, and structure is wonderful, um, but structure can also get in our way. It can make our scenes feel flat, because instead of entering the scene being present, being present with the location, we can enter the scene thinking, how do I make the scene do what I want to do, right? We can enter the scene with so much purpose that we actually lose a lot of the wonderful opportunities to make the scene come to life and feel real and feel funny and feel sad and feel touching and feel beautiful. We lose the trailer moments that we could be building, right? Because instead of thinking about what's going to look beautiful on the camera, we're thinking about, okay, where is it? How do I get from A to Z? Or how do I keep it contained to protect my budget as opposed to how do I make it beautiful? And beautiful doesn't have to be beautiful. Beautiful can be ugly, but beautiful really means specific. It means specific observed. It means realizing that your kitchen, your dining room is not the same as my kitchen, my dining room. It's realizing that Jake's in an Airbnb and that's different than home. 
And that means that there's something always a little dislocated about that. Or maybe it's about realizing that for Jake, the Airbnb is home and feels like home. There's a green screen behind me that makes this feel the same for every podcast, right? But maybe there's a moment where Jake tears down that green screen and we see what's been behind him the whole time. And maybe that thing is beautiful or maybe that thing is ugly. So what we want to do we want to start by using our visual acuity in the real world. Um, because until you learn to see things for real, it is much harder to see them in your imagination. Um, so start by observing. Next time you're standing in line, remember you're not just interior Starbucks day. You're in this Starbucks and start making a list of all the things you see that you don't expect and then start thinking, if I had a character in the Starbucks, how would I activate those things so I could start to tell their story inside of those things? Next time you're sitting on the subway, driving in your car, remember you're not interior subway day, interior car day, you're not exterior road day. You're on this road, this car, this subway, right? You're always looking for the specifics. And the stronger you get at finding the specifics, the more active your imagination is going to become around developing those specifics and taking those specifics to the next level. This is step one. Step two, see what happens if you start to think about locations from your past and to observe them in your mind's eye. So these are not imagined locations. These are real locations that you spent a good amount of time in. The more time you spent in them, the easier. But in your mind's eye to practice going into those locations and seeing things that you don't remember seeing when you were actually there. Looking with so much specificity that once again you're surprised and then thinking, how could I, if I replay the scene that happened there for real, how could I do a rewrite activating some element of that location, right? This is not how you write. This is how you build up your muscles as a writer, right? How you d develop those skills so that the kind of creativity that we end up seeing in Triangle of Sadness becomes easier for you, right? Because you're training your mind not just to see, but to look, right? Not just to label, but to examine. You're training yourself to be in a constant state of curiosity. Once you've started to do that, now I want you to start to look at the locations that you're actually using in your screenwriting. Um, and it might start by going like, okay, well, what are the locations that currently take place? But eventually, I want you to ask yourself a question every time you come up with a location. The question I want you to ask yourself is, is this the most fun location that I could set this scene in? Now, that fun doesn't have to mean funny. Fun can mean uh, sad, tragic, ironic, complicated, challenging, exciting, visually spectacular. I have access to it. I can shoot there for free. It can mean a lot of things. But you want to ask yourself, if you're shooting a scene in a location we've seen before, then the scene has to be really special. Um, if you take the same scene and move it to a location that we maybe haven't seen before, then the location starts to do some work for you and it will start to elevate the scene. 
And there's a little pun there because the scene we're about to talk about takes place in an elevator. So this scene starts at 1808 in Triangle of Sadness and it ends at 2009. Um, We have been watching our main character, uh, Carl, and his girlfriend, Yaya. Uh, They are, they're not supermodels. They are uh, influencer models, right? At the, they make a good amount of money. They get a lot of free stuff. She makes a little bit more money than him. She's a little further in her influencer career than he is in his modeling career. They've both had some success and they have glommed on to each other because uh, their relationship makes sense and and it works for both of their careers. Uh, and maybe there's some love there, um, but it's a little hard to tell. Um We've started, we're really going to watch in the first movement of Triangle of Sadness, the first, what they're calling chapters, right, is we're going to watch an epic relationship fight between Carl and Yaya. And that fight in itself is not particularly new. They're fighting over the check. And they're fighting almost in real time. Um, so they're out at a very fancy dinner and looking very fabulous at their very fabulous restaurant to being their sexy model selves with each other. And Carl gets annoyed because Yaya has waited for him to pick up the check. Even though the night before she said she was going to pay. And what proceeds is a really complicated power game between the two of them that is going to play out for page after page after page after page, almost like a real fight that you had with your partner. And it's going to begin in this kind of normal place of the restaurant. And it's going to continue in the taxi on the way home. And then it's going to escalate, or maybe I should say elevate, to the part of the fight that takes place in the elevator. And I'm going to play this scene for you right now, and I want you to watch the way that they use the elevator doors to make this scene so much fun, to take what otherwise would be a relatively traditional fight over money and make it about not about the money. Um, How they take what would otherwise be a relatively traditional scene and escalate it through a concept that we've talked about a lot in this podcast called the game of the scene. And the game of the scene is that the elevator doors are going to keep closing and closing and closing and closing and closing. They're going to keep on closing on the conversation. And every time they close on the conversation, it's going to make the scene a little bit more fun. So here's where it starts. But there comes a point where I do feel used. Where I use you? Well, I'm just referring to my feelings now, but sure, if we... No, 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 just wait. If we go back the last week or so... So the doors have already opened and closed twice. And we are only 15 seconds into this scene. Now they slide out to keep the doors from opening and closing. So then, yeah, maybe there is a point. Are you being serious? I got you the shirt. I invited you for dinner. You're staying in my hotel. 
Well, you got this shirt for free, and actually you didn't pay for dinner, so... Yeah, but that's because my card didn't work. There is a cash machine in the lobby. I'll pay back every last thing. You know so now she's hitting the button. You can see we're, we're escalated again. She's using the elevator to gain power over him, right, as she makes her argument that both he knows and we know is not true. Carl always intended to pay you back. I just didn't realize that you wanted the money right now. Now also look at this beautiful framing of this shot, right? We have the blue of the elevator illuminating her. She's almost framed, right? Shot from behind. So there's something gorgeous going on directorially using the elevator too. So your intention was to pay me back? Yes. Really? Yeah. So why did you take the 50 euro bill? Once I realized you didn't have enough cash, I paid the bill. And then instead of giving me the 50 euro bill, you put it back in your purse. What? I'm just saying what happened, Yaya. What did you do? So you can see she now st he's now standing on the outside of the elevator. She's on the inside of the elevator. She just stuffed the $50 bill down his shirt. You can see once again that activating the location. They're getting the very most out of it. And he's just ducked out of frame here at 19 minutes and 18 seconds in. What the fuck are you doing? Then he pops back into frame. We now have this beautiful shot of her framed in the blue box of the elevator. Don't fucking do that to me, y'all, And the doors close. Do that to me! And the doors close. Don't fucking... And he pushes the doors open. Seriously. Child! And he's standing inside the door and the door is closing on him. Now he's jamming the 50 euro bill into the door of the elevator. What the hell are you doing with my money? It's your money! Oh my god, it's, it's not about money, Yaya! It's not about... And now he's gonna bang on the door. We're gonna hear the door bang. We're gonna see it vibrate and we're gonna see it be pushed open from the other side, revealing him. The fucking money, Yaya. Oh. This is not, no, oh. it's not. You're not understanding the point. It's not about the money. I'll give you that 50 euros. I'll give you 100 euros. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, I'm serious now. This is not about the fucking money. You see, the door just closed again and he jams his hands in to keep the door open. Understand my point. This is not about the money. The door just closed again. He's now, we're all now on the other side watching him talk to the closed door. So you could see that the, the elevator, the location, wasn't just a location in that scene. The elevator became a character in that scene. The elevator became an obstacle in that scene. The elevator became part of the humor in that scene, became part of the escalation in the scene, became part of the action in the scene and the performance of the scene and the framing of the scene and the direction of the scene. You could see how that elevator amplified the entire film, the genre of the film, the mixture of pathos and comedy. You take that same scene in Triangle of Sadness out of the elevator and the piece starts to become more of a straight drama. You take that exact language out of the elevator, and not only will it start to feel more like a straight drama, you'll also start to recognize that this scene isn't that new, that we've actually been in this scene before. 
If all we have is the dialogue and we don't have the action in the elevator, we're not going to have the action of him slamming the $50 bill into the elevator. We're not going to have the action of him talking to the blank door. We're not going to have the action of her laughing from behind the door. We're going to be missing all that stuff that made this scene feel funny, real, and elevated, right? That made it feel more than just the traditional specific fight that literally everybody in the universe has had this kind of epic fight with their partner. So I want you to really think about the value of location. I want you to look at every location in your movie and ask yourself, are you getting the most out of it? Now, I promised you that through this, this conversation about location, we were also going to talk about the sociopolitical message of the film, right? So the film also takes place, even though there are lots of locations within this place, the film takes place in three basic locations, in three different chapters. In chapter one, the location is the real-world life of Carl and Yaya, right? The world of two people whose world is based, who are slightly on the outside, right? Who are on the way up, right? They're not in the 1% supermodel place yet, but they're on the way there. They're not at the bottom either, right? Struggling for status with each other and in their worlds, with their casting directors, with their partners, right? Playing power games with each other that seem like they're about the money, but aren't really about the money. This is where we, this is where we start. This is the first location. Now I'm not just talking scene heading locations. I'm talking about where does the movie live? It's the first location in Triangle of Sadness. And as we've talked about in each place that we go inside of that general location of their real world lives, we get the most value out of every location, filmically. The second chapter is set on a cruise ship. In the first chapter, we are mostly seeing, uh, we're seeing Carl, we're seeing Carl's status get knocked down by the casting director who tells him he should relax his triangle of sadness between his eyes, who says, oh, it's you. Right? As if this is a little below you, but also I'm disappointed. Right? Um, we watch those power dynamics happening as they force him to do the same walk again and again. Um, but most of the power dynamics are taking place on an interpersonal level through this epic fight between Carl and Yaya. In the second location, Carl and Yaya are the paupers in a world of the exceedingly rich, right? And the exceedingly rich that they're on this cruise with, they are not just rich. They are disgusting rich, right? We have the Russian capitalist oligarch, right, who literally sells shit for a living. I sell shit. We have the sweetest elderly couple who make grenades and guns. Uh, basically, our best-selling product is the hand grenade. Sorry, the what? The hand grenade, dear. And that's the highest social sphere, right? We have the lonely rich man who tries to 
flirt or hit or talk to Yaya and the daughter of the Russian oligarch, whose only pickup line is, I'm very, very rich, let me buy you a Rolex. Right? We have the lonely rich, right? But all of them are awful in some way, but they are the high status. And then we have Yaya and Carl, who despite their beauty in this world, they are the freeloaders, right? They are the poorest people of the rich, the aspiring celebrities among the mega wealthy who got the cruise for free. And the status games are continuing between the two of them as she continues to play her games and he's trying to lock her down by shopping for a wedding ring and by amplifying his status. So the next level down, we have the, the serving crew. And we get this fabulous scene at the beginning as their leader rallies them and they cheer and shout and scream because they're going to make so much money on tips. If everything goes well, at the end of the cruise, you might be getting a very generous tip. And then we go one level below deck to where the ceiling is bouncing and we're seeing the, the cleaning crew. We don't recognize who Abigail is yet, but these are the lowest of the low. And slightly above the serving staff, we have the captain, right, who has power over them, who can keep his door shut and stay drunk, who will be treated like a celebrity by the wealthy clientele, even as the staff are treated like servants who have to say yes. We will see the power games that are played even as people try to act nice. And we will see the shit flow downhill through the different levels of power in this world. We'll watch Yaya flirt with the half-clothed guy from the crew. Hey. Hey. And then we will watch Carl report him for working without his shirt on and probably inadvertently get the guy fired, right? We're going to watch all these different dynamics happening at all these different levels of socioeconomic and personal power as people jockey to maintain their place in society and to keep those below them, below them, even if they're keeping them below by what looks like kindness, such as the moment that the Russian oligarch's wife forces the crew to all go swimming when they don't want to go swimming, right? Her act of kindness is used as a power dynamic. Her let's reverse roles is not actually a lowering of her status. It's a raising of her status. So this is the second location. And just in case you don't get it, this three-hour tour is going to blow up when everyone gets seasick and the drunken captain and the drunken Russian oligarch, right? The symbol of socialism, the drunk socialist captain, uh, American socialist, right? And the drunk capitalist oligarch basically both abuse their status, right? Even though he might be spewing the language of the people, the Woody Harrelson character is actually using his power and abusing his power with catastrophic results for everybody below them. 
right? And what we're starting to see is that even though they're espousing completely different philosophies, that they are actually playing the same power game, right? It is not about the money. It is about the wielding of power, right? It is not about the actual philosophy. It is about the wielding of power. By the time it's done, not only has everybody vomited for half an hour in at one of the epic set pieces, and again, you can see how the boat gets activated in that drama. Uh, I'm thinking of one moment we see the vomit slide down the portal, and then we see the squeegee come up, and we realize that the crew is cleaning this up as it happens, right? Um, this has been pushed to the very extreme. We get the pirate ship. We get a, the grenade landing on the boat. And we get this wonderful moment where the sweet old lady who makes bombs with her husband picks up the grenade and goes, is this ours? I wonder if this is ours. So by the time it's done, what we've seen is two different philosophies, socialism and capitalism, both get corrupted by the corrupt people espousing them, using them for their own power. We've seen the very bombs that these people have used to elevate themselves take the whole ship down the modern warfare industrial complex, take down its perpetrators. And this brings us to the third location of Triangle of Sadness, the island. If you've seen the film, you already understand what happens here. Because on the island, all the power dynamics shift. Suddenly, Abigail, the housekeeper, who is at the very bottom, she's now the chief She's now the girl who can catch an octopus. She catches that with her hands. Who has the pretzels, who has a safe place to sleep, who can take care of them, who can provide them food. She now has the resources. They have no resources in this world. And suddenly she starts behaving like the 1% behaved in their world. Meanwhile, the Russian oligarch is the guy who's talking about we've all got to work together as a community. He's speaking the language of the proletariat. And what we're seeing, and this is part of what makes the movie so dark, and this is part of what, um, even as we're laughing, what, what also makes the movie so sad, right, is that what we're, what we're really seeing is not a story about, you know, the rising of the, of the proletariat against the 1% or vice versa. What we're really seeing is a movie about the darkness of human nature, right? How our desire to hold on to our power corrupts and destroys whatever is beautiful about us, right? And how simply by shifting the location, we can change the entire power dynamic, not just in a movie like Triangle of Sadness, but in your movie too recognizing that just like in your life, your characters in different locations have different status, have different levels of power. In the normal world of chapter one, Abigail probably couldn't even have a conversation with Carl. In the location of the boat, the only thing Abigail can do is clean up after Carl. She's at the bottom level. When we get to the island, Abigail is now the sexually desirable character for Carl. She now can play the role that Yaya used to play, right? She's someone who just like Yaya in the first half is good for his career, good for his future, good for his now, right? Their relationship makes sense. 
She can now attract the hot model and elevate his status. And she is a lot more desirable now for him than his own wife. Meanwhile, we're watching the other characters like the lonely guy who could only buy people Rolexes, right? Step into their role as hunter-gatherers, right? As valuable members of society, like that moment, wonderful moment where he kills the donkey, right? And it's hard and it's ugly, but we're watching him gain his skills, right? Because he has to prove himself through practical things because he can't just buy a Rolex anymore. In these different locations, people have different values. And as we career towards the end, we're going to see in Abigail what people are willing to do to hold on to their status. We're going to see Abigail, and we don't know exactly how it ends, but we're going to see her contemplate murder. Not to be found, but to stay lost. But we're also going to watch this incredible scene we're going to watch Yaya and Abigail, who've become rivals, become friends. They go on this wonderful hike together. And we're going to see a real bond develop between them, but we're all still going to see how the power dynamic destroys the possibility of bond. Because when they realize that they are not actually on a deserted island, they're on a resort, Yaya understands what Abigail's going through. And she genuinely wants to help her. But even as she tries to help her, She's still playing a power game because she says, Abigail, maybe, maybe you could be my assistant. And yes, that would be an elevation in status for Abigail from where she started, but it would be a lowering in status from where she is, right? Which is why we're going to see Abigail pick up that rock and contemplate whether she's going to murder this girl to make sure that nobody finds out where they really are. This is the power of location. Location is not just a cost in your movie. Every location is an opportunity in your movie. You're spending money because location gives you trailer moments, gives you genre, gives you feeling, gives you specificity, gives you opportunities to reveal character, gives you opportunities to mess with the power dynamics of your relationships, right? And to see aspects of your character that you might not otherwise see. If you enjoyed this podcast and it's helping your writing, come study with me. You can do so online from anywhere in the world. Our ProTrack program will pair you with a professional writer who will read every page you write and mentor you one-on-one -on -one throughout your career at the tiniest fraction of what you would pay for grad school. Our foundation classes will teach you the foundations of seven-act structure, how to write a TV show, engine, all that wonderful stuff in an organic way that builds your creativity and your voice. So check it out. Link in bio, writeyourscreenplay.com.